This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to the minefield. Scott Scotty's Batman mug. I've got my Batman T-shirt. We are ready to go as we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Lead Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. This is going to be a good show. I promise, Scott. It I is. promise. Because yes. the only reason, well, one of the many reasons you can say that, yeah. one of the reasons you can say that I've got my Batman mug yes. and that I can verify that you're wearing your Batman shirt yes. is that we are, in fact, in the same studio. Which, which is, is a, very rare. A very, very rare indeed. It is. There's one thing that we're missing. What's that? A Batman-related topic. Oh, that is true. Which, I mean, there are many. Yeah, there are. In including, I mean, we could talk about the moral worthwhileness of the DC imaginative universe over the impoverishment that is Marvel. Yeah. I mean, it's almost pointless, though, because there's no real debate. There is no real debate there. One of the really nice discussions to have, though, is whether the future of DC, which, and I think the comics have actually been going this way for a while, mm. but whether the future of DC on screen should be in the form of genre films. Oh, okay. So just... So like a DC Western... A DC Western, absolutely, you could do that. A yeah. DC detective movie, for instance. Well, because you have all of those shades in Batman. You have Detective Batman. Of course. And then you, you have do. Ninja Batman. Yeah, well, I mean, you have scientists. Ninja Batman can probably leave a little bit to the side. No, but, but simply, my point is they're there. They are so all you, there. You've got a suite of Batmans from which you can choose a genre. Well, what's, what's the plural of Batman? No, Batmans is the plural. <laughs> You want me to say Batman? I do want to no, say No, but I don't... No, because Batman, like, makes me think of them being simultaneously there. Okay. But Batman is like a discrete character. Yeah, yeah, except the way that DC has been going lately is precisely in the direction of... Of Batman. Of Batman, okay. which is really interesting. But, but as a matter of fact, I mean, the Joker movie, yeah. which I think was just about the best thing that DC has done since mm. I don't even know when, I mean, all of its influences were out of mafia films. That's true, yeah. Which is just another direction, I think. If you think about this as we're going to leave the popcorn and the cheese-eating fans and the inevitable bad reviews to the side, and <laughs> we just decide we're going to concentrate on our art, we're going to make really fantastic films that happen to have mm. some kind of vigilante or some kind of mega-villain at the heart of it, yeah. but draw on all of the best of the uh, imaginative literary cinematic resources that look more to Scorsese, for instance. Then, you know, I think there's, there's something there that could really be a step in the right direction. So Marvel make the money, but Scott Stevens is happy. Yes, and then that's, that that's sounds the trade. like a perfectly, perfectly what, fine bargain. What you haven't me. mentioned is that we also have a guest in the studio. Yeah, we do. It's true. Who is, because very often the guest is overseas or in a different city. Or on Skype. Us, and so they just listen to us prattle on. It's kind of uncomfortable because now the guest is sitting here just watching us prattle <laughs> on about a topic that has nothing to do with the topic of the show. As you just change the topic... <laughs> For the show, yeah. thereby making the guest redundant. Unless, of course, the guest has something to say about Batman. We could just switch topics right now. We actually could. Let's go ahead and bring his <laughs> mic up, shall we? Oh, we're going to do this already? Yeah. Oh, God, we're breaking all kinds of... Yeah. You've gotten giddy. Now, this, this is terrific. <laughs> this is far too good an opportunity for us, to, for us to pass up. And, Hugh, depending on what you say next... In terms of the relative merits of DC versus Hugh, that's <laughs> going to determine whether or not you continue to take part in the remainder of the conversation. Uh, our guest 
is uh, is Hugh Brakey. He's senior research fellow in moral philosophy at Griffith University Institute for Ethics, Governance, and Law. One which of the makes ma- him well placed. Which makes him very, very, very well placed. Kind of right in the triangle, <laughs> if you like. One of the other reasons that Hugh is here, though, is that unlike uh, he's a very fine philosopher. He's a friend of this show. But unlike many philosophers who have tried their hand at fiction and failed abysmally, Hugh has actually written an extraordinarily good novel called The Beautiful Fall, which is just out. Yes. There there we go. So Hugh's with us to talk about all sorts of different things, which I'll introduce properly in just a moment. Hugh, before we do jump into that, though... We need some music or something. We do need some, yeah. DC versus Marvel. Where do you stand? I'm sorry, I'm I'm Marvel. I'm committed Marvel. Is that right? Yeah. Why? Well, you're not a moral philosopher then, are you? Clearly. Ah, uh, it depends. Am I leaving my moral philosophy at home when I when I tap into the, tap into that world? I, Can I, I put something to you? And this is something that somebody put to me, which I hadn't thought. It makes sense as soon as I heard it, but I hadn't thought clearly, carefully about it until that moment. DC lives with archetypes with icons, with figures that are eternally recognizable. Mm. Some of these figures are straight out of the Iliad, for instance, but especially the villains. The villains are archetypal. Whereas Marvel, the villains are systemic and conspiratorial. It doesn't always work. For instance, you have kind of huge figures like, say, Doctor Doom or the Manchurian, but most of the villains within Marvel are indiscreet. They're insidious. They insinuate themselves so that you have the possibility of heroes turned villain or heroes secretly being villainous in a way that you could never, ever, ever have with DC. I mean, there is something about that that appeals to me, but doesn't get me all the way there. Yeah, no, that is that is interesting, the idea that, that there is that moral uh, challenge that's in play in the DC uh, in the Marvel universe about the the possible corruption of the heroes uh, rather than rather than Marvel. That said, my my teenage son assures me that that Superman has a serious weakness against against magical influences, despite his enormous huh? prowess. Um, although now I'm I'm moving into comics territory rather than <laughs> no no no. But but that is why every time Superman has ever gone up against Shazam, for instance, who is a ridiculous hero. But Shazam has owned him every day of the week and twice on Sunday. So, I mean, you're, you're right. There is a particular weakness to, to magic. Different it, type of corruption, yeah. Uh, can, I, can I just say before we actually plunge into the topic itself, one, one of the greatest moments in modern DC lore uh, came at the hands, as it almost always does, of Frank Miller. Mm. Frank Miller is the author of the Dark Knight Returns uh, series. He was the mind behind Sin City, which never really got me too much, behind 300, which didn't get me very much either. But what he did with Batman is art. Mm. So anyway, he, he, he did a long time ago, 25, 30 years ago, he did kind of two sequences involving the Dark Knight in old age, sort of older, bulkier Bruce Wayne coming out of retirement and deciding mm. to wreak havoc on a bunch of thugs and mutants who had taken over Gotham. Just a few years ago, he returned to the Dark Knight. Again, much older still, bulkier still. But this time, this time, what's the perfect villain for an elderly Bruce Wayne to go up against? It's a whole race of Kryptonians. And Kryptonians are, if you like, an intergalactic Aryan race. I mean, that is their, they they are the... And there's this moment, I'm not giving anything away, but there's this moment where an elderly Bruce Wayne takes down an entire fleet, which, you know, anybody who knows anything about the rivalry between Batman and Superman, I mean, I giggled like my <laughs> youngest son. 
uh, Batman takes down an entire fleet of Kryptonians by seeding the clouds with synthetic kryptonite. It's brilliant. And as they came through, the rain came down and it ate away. Anyway, it was... Um, it's brilliant. He didn't even need to fake his own death. He didn't it. even need to fake his own death. Um, should we introduce the topic for the day? Yes, please. Go on. Uh, Hugh, I, I think we might, we might tag team this because where I was thinking this topic might work... Mm. There's something that I've been thinking about for years, ever since I read a particular passage in Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue. And then reading Hugh's novel recently kind of brought a whole lot of things home to me that aren't discreet at all. It seems to me they're almost central to our experience of both moral progress and the moral life. It begins with Bertrand Russell, which it doesn't often begin with me. I dislike the guy on just about every level. I don't like his philosophy. The best thing that he ever did was to stick up for Wittgenstein. <laughs> uh, at, at Cambridge. Apart from that, I think his work is of is negligible. Is he the Jonathan Franzen of... He Hawking? is the Jonathan... Bertrand Russell is the Jonathan Franzen of British philosophy, indeed. Anyway, he, he gives this account in his autobiography of him riding a bicycle. I think it's in a field outside Grantchester. He's riding a bicycle and it dawns on him in a moment of revelation uh, that he is no longer in love with his wife, Alice. And his first instinct, and, and the, the realization kind of snuck up on him. The realization hits, and then he tries in some way to try to rationalize it. So he goes through his mind, all of the petty things, this litany of minor and major offenses that she has always done that just fundamentally irritates him. Is that why I've fallen out of love with her? Not quite. He thinks about it further and thinks about the way in which the chaotic uh, atmosphere of their home has impeded his ability to do philosophy. Is that the reason that he's fallen out of love with her? Uh, he's no longer sexually attracted to her. He admits that. But is that the reason he's out of love with her? No, he even flirts with the idea of temperament. Maybe I'm just not the kind of person that can be in love with a woman for more than seven or eight years. He flirts with that, even scrawled it in the initial, in the first edition of, uh, of the autobiography. What he comes up with is this. It's always been something that interests me. It's a rationale that's not really a rationale at all. He says, when I made the promise, I was a different person. Why should my past self bind the happiness of my present self? That was a me who made that promise. That promise does not bind me now. It's remarkable. I mean, it's a remarkable thing to say because in one swoop, it throws out the idea of both moral progress being an expression of moral consistency. That's an idea that's been there. Mm. Even if moral progress is a kind of ascent, as it is for Plato, for both Plato and Aristotle, it's still predicated on the idea that who I am tomorrow must be continuous with who I am now. I'm the next step on. So it's a, it's a strange kind of admission or a non-rationalization. It's a strange way of thinking about the moral life as being shrugging off a series of bonds to other people. Mm -hmm. But it's also deeply consonant with, for instance, Friedrich Nietzsche's critique of promises. Promises, he said, were the way in which we are bred into moral animals. Um, so promises essentially confine us into a position of conformity, of artificial consistencies, where who we are now binds who we are in the future. But that form of binding is so that we simply become predictable social agents, predictable social actors. Uh, in other words, we simply become animals who are conformist. And so that, again, in Nietzsche's vision of moral perfectionism, 
the steady ascent of the self has got to be in the form of this laughing no, in the form of all of these artificial forms of conformism that have bound me in the past. I find this, this idea of whether or not we can bind ourselves in the future, whether or not our promises do anything to us as moral agents, I find that a really, really challenging idea because I think both of those versions, whether it be Bertrand Russell's or Friedrich Nietzsche's, I think they both get something fundamentally wrong about the nature of promises, but that's something we can I kind agree. of get to soon. Yeah, I find it interesting that you find it interesting. I feel like I need you to explain why it's interesting because I find both these accounts just fundamentally unpersuasive okay, why? from the get-go. Why, why, why? why? What is persuasive in them? Yeah. So breaking a promise is not some kind of radical disruption of continuity. It's a breach of trust. Mm. What's predictable is not your behaviour in every instance. What's predictable is that when you make a promise, you will fulfil it. That's, that's a very particular kind of, of behaviour. It's not some kind of universal nature of character. Mm. There is continuity to the extent that the person who makes that promise is the same person, irrespective of whatever characteristics that person has that have They inhabit the same body in space and time. Yes. And even the same consciousness, even Mm. if the details of that consciousness or the things that constitute it have changed. But this all just sounds to me like getting out of stuff. Mm. And which, by the way, when I say that, that makes me think I'm missing something. There's got to be more depth to this because... As stated, there, there seems to be no depth at all. Well, let me just add one thing and then I'm going to invite you to say something. <laughs> it's very gracious. Yes, sorry. Um, we are limiting your time, by the way, Hugh, because you blew it when it came to Marvel DC. <laughs> Damn it. We, we, I don't even know if he's technically still in the show. We I'm would have vacated the stage. <laughs> um, one of the interesting things for both Russell and Nietzsche is that promises remain something entirely external to the person. I think that's, that's probably fair to say. So even the idea of the past self, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a form of heteronomy. It's like an, a, an external law, a law outside of myself. Mm. So a promise of my past self for both of these thinkers functions in the same way as, say, the Kantian categorical imperative. It still comes from the outside in the form of a you must, you mm. ought, you ought to do this. I think, again, what is missed here is the extent to which there is something inherent and intimate about a promise. One of the things that a promise does, precisely because it intersects with the, with the realm of trust, is that it does, it does implicate the person in their innermost, in their innermost uh, person, their moral selves. It implicates them in the lives of others. So it's not something that is purely or wholly external. There is a, a, a very real extent to which promises bind us to another. And I guess one of my big questions is, is that binding purely formal? Is it purely external? Now, one of the reasons I wanted you in on this is because of your novel, which is not a philosophical novel. It's a novel by a philosopher. Is that? That sounds about right. Okay. So there's an interesting premise, though. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sort of explaining the premise of the novel and maybe explaining some of the philosophical resonances with that premise without saying that it's a philosophical novel. Terrific, yes. Okay, so The Beautiful Fall is a story about uh, a character, Robbie. Uh, He's a young man. He has recurring amnesia, so he forgets uh, everything about himself every six months or so, and the novel picks him up when he is about 12 days away from his next forgetting. 
So everything that he's doing, he lives by himself. He's very reclusive. He's very self-disciplined. Everything he's doing is designed to make sure that he manages to, to push himself through that event, that the person that he is now is the person that he's going to be in 13 days' time, and that therefore, like the rest of us and like the rest of us often take for granted, that he has autonomy over his life, that he is able to, to see his choices uh, reign over his future life, that he's able to retain that sense of self that takes him from, from one moment to the next. And in the same way, he's, he's looking backwards as well. He's looking backwards to the, to the Robbies, as it were, who went before him, uh, and he's, he's thinking about his loyalty to them. And at the same time as all of this is happening, at the same time as he's counting down those 12 days, a young lady enters his life and, uh, and he begins to fall in love. And so that then creates another uh, potential threat to the autonomy that he is striving for uh, so rigorously. And one of the things that's interesting about um, the, the setup for our conversation here is the type of relationship that Robbie has to, to his future and the type of relationship he has to his past because sometimes the efforts that he's going for his future to look after his future, especially in those moments of vulnerability where he doesn't know who he is at all in the world, um, can feel a lot like altruism. It can feel a lot like the type of respect we pay to someone else that we really care about, but not actually ourselves. And equally, when he's looking backwards, some type of the relationship he has with that past person and the commitments that he has inherited from that past person and maybe even the types of promises that they have given are almost being brought to him as if they're coming from, an, from, a, from a different person, from another agent who's made those decisions about him and for him. And so he has to wrestle with his relationship with that and his understanding of that. So in that sense, uh, Robbie is intertwined in this world of, of promises to the future and, and to the past, um, but at the same time being, being divorced from them in a, way that, uh, in a way that we are not ordinarily divorced from our future and past selves, um, although perhaps Bertrand Russell uh, notwithstanding in the moment <laughs> when he, he decides he's, he's no longer in love. Hmm. So let's get then to the moral questions that that raises. Hmm. Because if you're going to posit some kind of radical rupture or disconnection between the past and the present self, there raises all sorts of, I think, um, threshold questions about at what point does that rupture? How, am I a different person now to the one I was at the beginning of this show, for example? Can I claim that? Or how far exactly does that go? But if we're going to claim that sort of disrupture, um, what does that do to the moral field? Um, you know, is it effectively just a way of freeing ourselves from really any kinds of moral bonds? Because the only thing that can ever really exist is whatever exists in the moment. Well, for for the character in the novel, it's the it's the forgetting that's the disruption. But then, of course, he's he's trying to overcome that. He's mm. trying to 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 hold on to the identity that that we all hold on to um, most of the time, ordinarily, just going about our, our general lives. And so he's thinking up all of these ways in which even with the, the loss of memory, he can structure his world, he can structure his relationships, he can, he can impact on his physical body, the environment around him to make sure that he is still going to be that future person. And so for him, in a sense, what he's trying to do is, is resist any sense of that, of the disruption of making sure that the person that, that he is going to be in the future would be bound, uh, would, be, would be controlled in a sense um, by him now. And then there's then then there's a question of does does that ever become problematic? Is there ever cases where uh, we can be 
controlling our future selves, binding them uh, in a way uh, that, say, Nietzsche was thinking about. And we do make promises to ourselves. These are, these are, there are cases where we mm. make commitments to ourselves, where the respect that we owe to other people vanishes. And it's interesting to think about them because if the promise is entirely predicated on that trusting relationship that we're building with the other person of their ability to, to, to structure their lives around undertakings that we've made, if that's removed, is there anything left of the, the promise to ourselves? And if there is, then it feels to me a bit like that, that Nietzsche here was on the right track because there is a sense in which I can be bound by by my past self and feel like I I am obligated, I owe it to to myself in a sense, to uh, to who I am as a person, to follow through on that, even though even though I might prefer to relinquish myself um, from that from that binding. Mm. And, and in fact, Nietzsche does speak very very fondly, very firmly, almost ecstatically about the joys of forgetting. Forgetting, in fact, as a form of liberation from the past as mere constraint, or the past as guilt, or the past as being bound to convention or to others. So, uh, I mean, this sounds like a philosophy of amoralism to me. Well, yes, and it's not a philosophy of mor- of morality. No, that's right? so. It's it's great to talk about. I'm liberated from this sort of. But liberation is not is not a moral goal, right? It might be a political goal at times, and the thrill of it. Well, lots of things are thrilling, but that doesn't imbue them with any kind. Of, that's the word you like. Um, this doesn't imbue them with any kind of moral quality. So I still don't understand. This is what I'm I'm befuddled. It's like a, there's like something very obvious that everyone except me understands in this conversation. Mm. What is the moral claim in defence of this? Well, look, I'm not at all interested in making a moral claim in defence of it. I'm really interested. But was Nietzsche? Well, yes, but he did a tremendous amount around this. And and look, I mean, there there is there is a conception of the moral life that is bound up with Nietzsche, that some philosophers who I love have done a great deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so someone like Stanley Cavell, for instance, described Nietzsche as a prophet of what he referred to as moral perfectionism. It's an idea that flows from the work of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Nietzsche was a great reader. He was a devourer. In many respects, he was almost a transposer of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And one of the ideas of moral perfectionism is that the process of the moral life is to constantly resist and to overcome conformity, to never rest with one's present self, and to recognize that, as Emerson put it, around every circle, a further circle may be drawn. So for Nietzsche, for a recluse like Nietzsche, for a genuine misanthrope, I think that's not too much to say. I mean, Nietzsche really was a interpersonally problematic person. Is that, is that all right to say? I think that's fair. Okay. Um, you can understand the moral strain, the moral journey being an entirely solipsistic one, the leaving behind of a world of sickness and conformity and the achievement of a position of, I mean, as he described it one, at one point in Zarathustra, standing upon a mountain in the pure light of day, laughing uproariously at those below. So that's kind of his vision of the moral life. And there is something about the moral perfectionist vision that is interesting precisely because it pits itself against unthinkingness, mere conformity. 
But then there's this question for me, and this is the one that, that, that keeps coming up. If we think about promises, not simply as a form of social convention. So I make promises so that I'm not an outcast within a particular social order. I make promises so that people think that they can trust me. It's a utilitarian way of thinking about promises. If promises aren't simply external to myself, but promises are, if you like, the cultivation of an environment within which my life can be entrusted to others and their lives can be entrusted to me. In the highest form, we, we might think about this as a form of marriage, but I think there are other forms, forms of mutual interdependence within a democratic community, forms of friendship are absolutely, I think, forms of relationship within which promises have been made, even if those promises aren't simply I mean, you know, one of those promises, for instance, would be the unspoken promise that who I am to your face is who I'm going to be behind your back, that I'm not going to diss you before a common enemy, for instance. Um, but I think one of the things that is not recognized here and certainly not recognized by either Russell or by Nietzsche is the extent to which my obligations of trust and my condition of being entrusted to others is the condition of moral progress itself. In other words, I don't simply become better by throwing off chains. Yeah. I become better by being drawn out in relationships of mutual, mutual dependence, of mutual chastening, of mutual reproof and reprimand. I get drawn out of myself, not out of conformity, but out of, if I can put it this way, almost self-delusion and self-entitlement. Kind of self so it's this idea of promise not as something that's merely outside and it kind of sits on me like an imposition, but rather promise as that which draws me into the orbit of somebody else. And it's only in that orbit that I experience anything like a process of moral advance, which is why I guess I found uh, after Robbie lives a life of enclosure, self-protection and solitude, the bringing of somebody else into that universe as something that creates something like maybe not a moral ascent, but it adds something substantially different. For me, I found that a really interesting parable of of moral development. Um, before you respond to that, I just need to do a thing. We call the reset in the biz, Hugh. Uh, this is the minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app or by following the minefield on your podcast platform of choice. This is the part of the show where we would normally introduce the guest. We've already done that. So by now... You may know that Hugh Brakey is our guest, Senior Research Fellow in Moral Philosophy at Griffith University's Institute for Ethics, Governance and Law. Um, I'll let you respond to Scott, Hugh, and then I have a question to ask. Right. Uh, so, I, th I mean, I think that's right. That is what is happening uh, with, with Robbie in his life as he, as he is developing all of those sort of those those commitments and those networks getting drawn out of himself but at the same time i think i think one of the worries that we can have or maybe one of the things that we need to navigate is that we do get drawn out of ourselves and one of the ways that that happens is through creating this this sort of network of of commitments and and promises and and the, all of the all of the things that then become the parameters of our moral life that if, if things are going well, are making us become a, a better person, are making us become less self-absorbed um, and less less uh, internally focused, self-interested self because they're bringing us out and letting us become a part of a community. But at the same time, 
that very network if, if we change enough as a human being and if we change our, our vision of it, then that very network of bindings that was helping us grow, that was helping us expand to become something new can start to look a lot more constraining. Uh, it can start to look a lot more like a cage, like something that, that we're sort of forced into, into being. Um, and sometimes it'll look like, like a, a constraining cage from a, from a purely that nakedly self-interested um, human being that we are, that we started started the, um, the the journey on, that we started to get drawn out of, and we want to retreat into that. Uh, we want to we want to cast off in in immorality all all of the things that we've been committing to. But at the same time, I think there is a sense that can happen in in people's lives where the next step of growth, the next thing that they are being challenged to do, is one. That, that is putting pressure on all of those relationships, those commitments, those expectations, and sometimes even those, those promises. And so I think there can be a sense in which we both, we both need those restrictions and we can create those restrictions, but at the same time, we, we, can, be, we can be limited by them. And it can be the case that we, we can look back at that past self and think this is this is too much that you've you've signed me up to you you were entitled to run your part of my life but i am a growing changing person and there's there's a sense in which i think you overreached with the type of control you wanted to exert over your future life when you decided to to bind me as your future now that i have changed so much and i don't want to go so far down to this path where i wind up defending russell um, but I do think that that, that that is a part of the way that this growth can happen and the times when we might be forgiving of a person breaking out and going in a, in a sort of new direction um, would be those cases where, where there has been change but also there is change in the future that is coming and the, the sort of need to, to cast off um, the limitations that our previous commitments put us under that, that that is something that that might be understandable uh, and perhaps even even morally acceptable. Mm. So okay. So what what's factored out of this discussion so far is the nature of the promise, the reason for breaking it. Right. So I I don't know whether or not this past self that made the promise is a more virtuous or less virtuous self than the one that is seeking to break it in this conversation. And maybe the only way to discuss this is through examples and there are infinite numbers of them. You could probably come up with any. So there's, you know, there's, this is a never-ending way of doing it. But let's say my promise to myself, and I want to stick with that idea because I think, Scott, the way you framed it makes it almost transactional and about social bonds, but it doesn't capture the, the, the holding oneself to account that I think is important. Here, right? So let's say my promise to myself was that I was never going to take uh, an illicit drug. And then I decide 20 years later, I've changed. And that is sufficient justification for me to break that promise. Now, on what grounds can we interrogate here that decision to break one's promise? It, like, does it have to be demonstrably a better course of conduct? Or is it enough to say, you asked too much of me? There's, there's so many drugs around now. <laughs> Drug laws have been changing. In other words, I, I, I've got a million excuses here. And for the sake of pursuing my, was it liberation? We'll call it liberation. Mm. For the sake of pursuing that, I'm simply going to break this promise. Or take a more benign thing. I promise myself I'm going to read something every day. 
And then I decide, yeah, but have you seen Netflix? The world has changed. I've changed. I'm now part of that sort of world. That stands in for me. I don't need to observe. You know, what's the accountability of the promise breaker here? And what is that in any way articulated? I'm not convinced it is being articulated. If the justification is around notions merely of change or motions nearly of merely of liberation. Mm. They seem to be terrible bases on which to break a promise. I'm open to the idea that breaking a promise might be a good and right thing to do in certain circumstances, but not on those grounds, surely. Well, I would think in some in, in some cases they are. I guess I mean one of one of the things about promises and promises to yourself that's so interesting is that with promises to other people um, you can be released from. Somebody can say, yeah. I know you promised me that you would do that, but but you don't need to anymore. In fact, in fact it wouldn't actually help me at all if, if you do that. Hmm. And so that's what makes a promise to yourself so so peculiar. Because if you can simply release yourself on, on a whim, uh, in the same way as you can release another person effectively from their promise on a whim. Um, then the promise to yourself becomes because it becomes something that's that's really really perplexing um, because how can you bind yourself if on a whim you can you can release your your bounds for that mm. um, and so so to my mind the the bindingness of the the past promise needs to be something that is um, you know that that is much more substantial that is sort of like the larger uh, the larger sort of fundamental self of the person. Because if you're ever in a position where you just want to release it on a whim and there's a reason for you not to do it, then there has to be something more than that, than, than that, that simple notion that, that, well, I said I would do it and now I release myself from it and now I can, I can just continue. There has to be some sense of a, of a self that you're appealing to where you wouldn't be doing the right thing by that self if you, if, if you uh, relinquish them from, from this promise because you really do think it's better f- as a human being to read every day. And so if you made the, the lazy, quick, whimsical decision that you were just going to chill with Netflix tonight, then that's not, that's not enough. And it's not, it's not purely because it was a promise, but because it was a promise that had a certain spirit, a certain um, push and presence behind it. Do you know what it had? It had an end. Yeah, and that's may, true too. Is this a way through it that like you can, I make promise A to serve end B, but over time end B is actually frustrated by promise A under those circumstances, particularly where there is no other party to the promise, mm. it's acceptable to violate promise A and perhaps replace it with another promise that better serves end B. This I could understand. And... There may, I mean, there may be something of this going through going through Russell's mind. He might be thinking something along the lines of we think of marriage vows. We almost, also might think of a, a priest taking taking priestly vows. The sense that the the thing that was necessary for this promise to have a point, to have a have a purpose, to to get me from A to B, the thing about A that got me to B was was predicated on an underlying base that. I still had a certain type of feelings and a certain type of relationship with this woman or I still had a certain type of relationship and faith in God. And if those things go away, then now no longer is, is, is the promise something that should be upheld. Yes, because of change, because I'm, I've changed, but not merely because I've changed from who I am, but because I've changed in a way that now robs that promise of of achieving the thing that, that that I set out to do initially when I made that promise. Except 
that we would then surely have to interrogate what are the things that have led to that change, right? So if if it's my faith in God or my belief or my love for my wife or whatever, and that's just changed, well, I'm sorry, that, that's not. These are not passive changes. These are the consequences of the decisions that you've made and conduct mm-hmm. that you've undertaken, right? Perhaps you no longer love your wife because you're not at all invested in maintaining that relationship, in which case violating this promise to give her a gift every week or whatever the promise might be, um, I don't think is adequately justified on the grounds of, well, I no longer feel that way. No. What's, what's bound up in that promise is that you're tending to something and you that you ceased to tend to, mm. right? So they, I think these things are just a lot more intricate than... The, they, they really are. And look, there's an easy way out of this. And the easy way out of it would be something like virtue ethics, which is essentially one of the things that a promise does is it helps you to become the kind of person that wouldn't want to break that promise even if you could. Yeah. I think that's, a, that's an easy way out. It's, it's, a, it's a, also a bastardized idea or conception of virtue ethics, but that's the way that a lot of people talk about it. I guess one of the things, though, that I find really interesting, and here's where, Waleed, I'm, I'm not quite as comfortable about using examples that are too trivial, because I think what it... I'm, I'm not saying that all your examples were trivial, but, you know, something like, say, reading a book every day. I mean, there's something about that which is maybe an ambition. But see, when we talk about, I want to be true to myself, I don't think we usually make promises to ourselves. We usually think in terms of, I want to be true to who I am. I want to be true to myself. Maybe oh, I make promises to myself. Okay, wonderful. I, th- I think people do. Don't, uh, you really don't think people do that? I think more people would probably think of wanting to behave in a way that is consistent with who they really are or their self-conception of themselves. We might sort of, but I'm we might make amb- we might have aspirations, we might make ambitions, but when it comes to something that we see a little bit more binding than I really, really, really want to do this because I really want to, I don't know, get through all of Tolstoy's major novels in the next three years, or I want to lose some weight, or whatever. I, I think there's a difference between making a promise that is an expression of a degree of consistency with the way that we see ourselves with an aspiration. Can I can I just make that distinction between? Yeah. Well, you, you can make whatever distinction you I want. I can make. Okay. <laughs> but I think what we're uh, yeah, what to some think. extent we're missing is that what a promise does, whether it be to oneself. Or whether it be to another. And here's where I'm, I don't see promises to another as being fundamentally different from promises to oneself. The promise to the other may well be different insofar as one is accountable, whereas a promise to myself will only be a matter of accountability. Well, there is a form of accountability in the Kantian register, which I'll come to in a second. But it's only really that if I, say, told someone, you know, this is, this is, my, this is the promise that I made myself, I will not eat flesh of a formerly living creature, for instance. Mm. But I think what is interesting is that when one does a promise, there is a willful self-limitation of the conditions of one's life. But that then creates the possibilities, not just of slavish adherence to the promise that's been made, but also to forms of virtuosity, to forms of creativity that would not have been there otherwise apart from the promise that one made oneself. And here's where I think the idea of this promise being something that matters to me. It is an expression of something I feel really, really deeply. And it could even be an expression of something that I feel deeply now and that I'm terrified I'm not going to feel as deeply about it later. Mm -hmm. But I want to capture this moment. I want to capture this moment of insight. I'm going to 
I'm going to capture this promise, I'm going to make it to another person, or I'm going to do something that formalizes it in the structure of my life. And from that moment, I think you really are, yes, you are binding yourself, but you're also committing yourself to a process of constant reaffirmation of that promise, which isn't a matter of slavishness. Anyone who thinks that, you know, slavish adherence to the vows that one made to one's wife is the way that you fulfill the marital bond yeah, is, I suspect, the point of living the... in a very, very... But it's rather finding ways of constant reaffirmation, constant rediscovery of the newness of that promise that does, in fact, lead to forms both of moral assent or advancement, but also to ways of rediscovering forms of newness and refreshment in the context of a binding relationship with another person. This is where I think promises... Uh, promises may well be very close then to some of the laws that we give ourselves, mm. not as ways of imposing restrictions on other people, but ways of causing the conditions of our social life to achieve greater and greater and greater forms. Yeah, which is, this is, so this is a good articulation of why I have such a problem with at least your version of Nietzsche, if not Nietzsche himself. Mm. Because it seems to make the virtue nonconformity. Mm. And it seems to make conformity some kind of um, failure. Well, sorry. Well, he, he would regard conformity as an impoverishment of the soul. Absolutely. There is a, there is a tension in Nietzsche, though. I mean, almost, yeah, almost everything that he says, you know, uh, phrases in bad terms at one point, he will actually say something good about, you know, elsewhere or maybe even in the, in the same paragraph. He's, you know, he's in extremely complex. Um, and, and certainly we see this with, with the promising. I mean, he's in a sense he's impressed by this creature that can bind itself through time. That's a pretty amazing trick as far as Nietzsche's concerned, that we could have this animal that has managed to, to rise up so far and, and its civilization around it has managed to progress to this point where it can do this thing that no one else can do. And especially because we're talking, so this is in Nietzsche's genealogy, so he's talking you know, a long way back in time. So nowadays, Nietzsche's... Except the fact that he then refers to that as a form of breeding... It does take a little bit of the moral air out of that particular balloon. <laughs> well, it, well, it depends what we mean by morality because yes, the nature of breeding can be a pretty good thing, right? So, so back then, the creatures that could promise, nature is bringing that up in the context of these are the elite. These aren't the, the, the poor pawns being, being um, you know, pushed around and, and living sort of thoughtless or, or less worthy lives. These are the most worthy people and they have managed to do this impressive thing. They have bound up their honour so with, with, their, with what they say that they can be relied upon in the future because that's how seriously they take this binding. That's how seriously they take, they, they take their honour. So there is a there is a real sense in which the same time Nietzsche is is priming us for for where he will come to in the notion of of the conformity and and the need for us to be to be doing things very very differently or at least self liberating in the reasons we do things uh, even if not the things we're doing because Nietzsche doesn't necessarily think breaking promises is a good thing but he thinks relying on promises for very pedestrian reasons is not is not a good thing. What's a pedestrian reason? In that context. Oh, so for Nietzsche, a pedestrian reason would be, um, you know, easily because everyone else is doing it um, or because that's what I was taught to do. Um, but in a more sinister vogue, and it probably needs to be mentioned for Nietzsche, he also would be thinking that, that the idea of I'm doing it out of profound respect for other people 
would be a much more worrying thing for Nietzsche than it would be, I think, for, for me or, or most uh, usual people and most um, modern philosophers mm. now. Um, so I'm not mounting a full-throttle defence of this idea of, of, of Nietzsche's, but what I am saying is that there was a real sense in which, especially when it was first developed, um, that the promising was impressive. It was an extraordinary feat that was going, that was being attempted and being achieved, and it was something that was then, uh, as Nietzsche would put it, made the human animal more interesting. It, it had until then been something that, that was um, perhaps marvellous in a bunch of ways, but did not yet have complexity, did not have depth. And it was this process that was starting to, to allow those things to rise up in the human being. If you just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We're joined today by Hugh Brakey, who's a Senior Research Fellow in Moral Philosophy at Griffith University's Institute for Ethics, Governance and Law. He promised us he'd turn up. He did, Scott. He did. And he promised us he'd stay to the end. And he almost has. <laughs> Um, one of the one of Nietzsche's great modern interpreters, I brought him up previously, Stanley Cavell. One of the many things in Cavell's work that I've always been kind of fascinated by is the book length treatment that he gave to what he describes as Hollywood's comedies of remarriage. So this is a sequence of films from about 1934 to about 1947. Among them, Philadelphia Story, one of my favorite films, The Awful Truth, The Lady Eve. Uh, Adam's Rib, uh, It Happened One Night. I think that's all of them. Um, but one of the things that Cavell explores in that book, and it's one of the reasons why he calls these films belonging to the register of the moral life, is in each one of these films, a couple falls apart. So they are married. They were married. The film opens almost invariably on the precipice of that marriage falling apart or with some final straw happening so that they are falling apart. But then there's something about the habituation of their lives together, their ability to know one another, their capacity to laugh together, the intimate understandings they have one another, maybe even the shared cynicisms that they have. There's a class dimension to it as well, but you know that's kind of the less interesting part of all the other wonderful things. And the rest of the film is you have these various suitors vying for each one of the couple's attentions. And yet nothing in heaven and on earth can stop them from coming back together again. It's not fate. It's not gravity. But they reach the point where there is a kind of reaffirmation of the promise. And then you suddenly realize that for promises to be promises, those promises need not to be obeyed. They need to be reaffirmed. Mm. They need to be remade. And I think for any moral philosophy worth its salt, when you think about trust, when you think about promise, you have to think in terms of creativity. You have to think in terms of virtuosity. Annette Bayer, another wonderful philosopher, uses the example, you know, someone might have promised that they will be at my house every Monday to help clean up uh, the house and to help care for my kids. But if I find out that they've arrived at my house and left their dying mother in order to keep their promise to me, they have broken the terms of our agreement. I will never trust them with a promise again. And that's just a sort of a bad example of the idea that promises require virtuosity. In order to keep a promise, it needs to be reaffirmed and reaffirmed in ways that keep the moral life fresh and interesting and new. And for me, that's a much more interesting way of thinking about things than mere autonomy versus mere slavish conformity. Yeah, which takes away then the whole discourse of I've changed, right? Because this is an iterative process that has been going on and there's reaffirmation. I wonder if you're drawing a distinction between reaffirmation and renewal. 
or whether they're just the same thing. But one thing that happens in whatever you want to call that process is that a fuller perhaps or more detailed understanding of what that promise actually means comes into existence and therefore a a fuller accordance with that promise can now be performed. Mm. Um, And I think that raises something really interesting that we haven't spoken about because we've spoken about the the conditions under which you break a promise and the, the state of the person who's breaking that promise. We haven't thought much about the state of the promise maker. Right? So if, if there's a lot of change that happens in that process, what was the state of that person who, who made that? Under what conditions? Were, like how do you get to the point? How serious should you be or how reluctant perhaps should you be to make a promise? How much thought must you have put into it? What sort of contingencies must you have factored into the situation precisely how deep is the meaning of the promise ab initio before you even then get to the question of reaffirmation Mm. or do you just leave it to reaffirmation to to sort out i was thinking about this when scott was talking earlier i was thinking it's um you know that that idea of of finding something that you're going to to bind yourself to that is going to be sort of like a a north star for for your development and i was thinking I was thinking of someone getting a tattoo um, and I was thinking of someone making a bad decision uh, about a, a tattoo and then looking back, you know, 30 years hence and thinking uh, the, the lyrics for the Smashing Pumpkins just, just weren't that, they weren't that good, not enough, not enough to have them have them as a sleeve down my arm. And I think it, it, it does make us realise when, when we start thinking of it no longer as being an exercise of autonomy but as something that we must continually reaffirm or when it's when it's fracturing we must work out how to renew it does put a huge amount of responsibility on us as promise makers in the first place these aren't things that can be you know done in any type of flippant way because if we're going to be the type of person who takes our promises very very seriously uh, down the line then we need to be here now a person that is giving a certain amount of respect to that person down the line that is understanding that they they will be a changed person, that they will need their freedom in their life and whatever we're doing now, if it's going to bind them in an open-ended way, um, so in a sort of long-running way, it really needs to be something that is that is of profound importance and that we can we can believe will be something that, that will shape them and improve them and allow them to grow within its binds as, and, as they go forward. And if that's true, then promises will have and should have factored into them the inevitability of change, thereby making change not an excuse. Yes, uh-huh. yes, true, true. That's already been factored in. You, you can't pull that card but, anymore. But ideally it's been factored in. I mean, if we, if we said, sure, okay, sure. should we be, right. you know, should, should we be bound by a promise we made as a 12-year-old, then we're going to say, well, well, no, because I was, I was too young then to, to, to realise what my life was going to be like. Um, but I think I think you're right that by the time you know you sort of become an adult and you become capable of making those types of decisions that that you know the expectation is that you are actually making decisions that factor in the fact that you're going to be a changing human being over time and that you're going to have to live then with what you're uh, demanding of yourself now. One of the I mean, one of the reasons that Immanuel Kant, for instance, placed such a high premium both on truth-telling and on promise-keeping, wasn't simply because failing to do so broke some categorical law, but because deceiving another 
and breaking a promise led one to hold oneself in a degree of self-contempt. You look, you begin looking down on yourself from the perspective of your previous better mm -hmm. self. I mean, that's something that's kind of always haunted me. But the other thing that Kant realized is that failing to keep promises and failing to tell the truth, it fouls the, the moral atmosphere within which people live. Um, it decreases the ability of others to trust other people. And even if the promise is to oneself? Uh, well, this would be particularly, particularly so, public promises. So this is the erosion of trust. This would be particularly yeah. pub public promises. But this is why, again, Kant put a very, very high premium. If you are a public or what he described as a representative figure, someone who stands in the place of all of humanity yeah. or an entire class of people. Or a nation. Or a nation. And you make a promise and you shirk on that promise or you situations change and I've had to change with it. That degree of political expediency that we allow representative figures to get away with quite easily now, mm. the ambient effect on that, on an entire moral climate, well, for Canton, I think he was right about this, is catastrophic. Well, if you delivered us to something, it would have been great to talk about earlier, because I think there's a lot of subtlety. I'm not sure I can agree with Kant on that to that extent, yeah. because I think it comes down to the nature of political promises, yes. the circumstances in which they're made, the absolute language we demand of politicians that yes. forces them to make these things called promises that aren't promises in the sense that perhaps Kant assumes mm. and on and on it goes. I wasn't you're right. Be, I mean, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to engage with it, but I guess I just did. Mm. Didn't I? That was silly of me. We are out of time, gentlemen. Um, and I can look you all in the, both in the eye and say that. It's quite an extraordinary thing. Um, so thank you very much for helping us out, Hugh. Great to have you on the show again. Oh, it's been great to be here. Literally be here. <laughs> Indeed. Hugh Brakey, Senior Research Fellow in Moral Philosophy at Griffith University's Institute for Ethics, Governance and Law. Political promises, another minefield. Perhaps one day we'll discuss that, but not this week because we're at an end. We'll see you next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.